We'll be in Ephesians 1, verses 18 to 23. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. So last week I mentioned the already but not yet nature of our salvation. And if you missed that, it's a term Christians use to speak to the fact that many aspects of our salvation, we have already received them. And yet we, at the same time, have not yet fully realized them. So for example, we have already received the gift of eternal life, but we have not yet died in this flesh and put on a new body and a new transformed, renewed forever life. Like we understand that. You know, another example would be we are already counted righteous in Christ, but we are not yet perfectly righteous in the practice of our lives. Um, A third example of that that I want to focus on this morning, because that's where Paul is going in this prayer. And he's kind of like, he said a number of things here, and now he's kind of taking the last thing he said about the power of God, and he's expanding on it for the section of verses that Edith read for us this morning. And that is this. He's saying, we have already been granted access to the power of God, but we have not yet fully experienced that power in our day-to-day lives. And I want to look at the second part of that statement first, that we haven't experienced the fullness of his power. We're generally not experiencing the fullness of his power. And if I were to go, you know, person to person, family to family in this room and those watching online, my guess is many of you don't feel like you're crushing it in life, let alone the Christian life. You would say things more like, I'm, I'm tired, I'm discouraged about some things, I'm frustrated about some things, not just in the world, but things I see in my own life. And many times we feel impotent to make the kinds of changes that we want to make. And we're like, I want to do the right things. I don't want to do other things, but I just feel defeated so much of the time. And I continue to struggle with the same temptations, the same doubts, the same fears, the same frustrations, the same failures and sin habits. And some of you can relate to that. You're like, I want to live for God. I believe Christ is worthy, but I'm struggling. I'm weak. Or some of you may feel more like this, honestly. You may be successful. And I know many of you, and you are successful. And you say, look, I've got a, I've got a good job with a good income. I've got good friends, a good family. I've got a good home. And as you reflect on the goodness and the success in your life, the reality is your success is more natural than it is supernatural. And what I mean is the way you've come about your success is really no different the way a non-Christian would experience the same prosperity or success. You, you would not point to something in your life and say, 
it's just Jesus. This, like, this makes no sense that I have this job. You would be like, no, I got a good education. I work really hard. I make wise decisions. There's a little bit of luck thrown in there. But I network like crazy, and yeah, I'm successful. And so I'm really talking to two groups of people this morning. There's the group that you would say, I'm kind of the latter group. I'm, I'm self-made. And I don't mean like completely self-reliant, but just like I'm strong, successful. I'm, I'm doing okay. But the success has not seemingly come through any divine or supernatural power means. It just, I just work hard. So that's one group of people. The other group is that first group I was talking about where you're like, I am struggling and frustrated and tired and weak, and I would love to experience God's power. And I want to say, whoever you are, if you fit either of those categories or if you're shifting back and forth between those two categories, God wants you to know and experience his divine power. And we know that because that's what Paul is praying here. Remember backing up, he's praying in this prayer for the Ephesian church and this collection of probably house churches in that whole Asia Minor area with this modern-day Turkey. He's praying, like, I want you to know God. I mean, like, really know him, experience him personally, intimately, in relationship with him, not just knowing facts about him. I want you to know him. And I want you to know the hope of your calling and the riches of your inheritance and then this divine power. And what we came to this morning is basically Paul's going to make a statement of that power and how great and incomparable it is. Then he's going to offer proof of that power. And then he's going to say, now here's how you get it if you want it. And I want to give you kind of the punchline first, the, the theme, the, the one big idea, and then walk you through this. So as I'm reading this, Paul's saying, through union with Christ, we are meant to experience the incomparable power of God. And you see that this whole section is first and foremost about Jesus Christ and how there is no one and nothing like him. Now let's unpack this. There, as I say there's an incomparable Christ, I think Paul shows us four things here. There's an incomparable strength. There's an incomparable story. There's an incomparable status of Christ, and then there's an incomparable solidarity that we share with him. So let's just walk through those things. Um, and the most obvious is point one, an incomparable strength. And I'm going back to something we looked at last week in verse 19 where we ended, and I think it bears repeating because the verses and illustrations that follow verse 19 are built on this foundation of verse 19. So again, remember Paul's praying, I want you to know and experience the power of God. And the grace of his gifts to understand the enormity of the treasure that you have in God. And one of those gifts, verse 19, is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. And look again. We did this last week, but look again. Power, working, great, and might are four different Greek words that are talking about someone's inherent power raw power, their ability to do whatever they want to do, consistent with their character, authority, dominion. All of that is rolled into what Paul says is immeasurably great or literally extraordinarily megathos, which I love that. Like all of these are incredible, overwhelming. And I want you to notice two key attributes then about God's power. Number one, God's power is limitless. Okay, we have this word omnipotent, which we just throw out, omnipotent. It's omnipotent, all potent, all powerful. 
It is immense. It is immeasurable. It is absolute. It is infinite. Like God just does in Christ whatever God wants to do. And again, what's consistent with his character, but these words that are stacked on top of each other, power, might, great, working, is just saying he does what he wills. But notice this good news as well. God's power is not only limitless, but it's personal. God's power is not presented to us as this abstract, impersonal, cosmic force. Like, like there was this explosion of energy and atoms that, that happened at the beginning of time, just all on its own, and everything came into being. Like Paul's kind of saying the opposite. He's like, God's power is toward us who believe. He's saying it's intentionally directed toward working for those who love him. And I think it's important that we, that we hold these two things together, that God's power is limitless and it's personal. And let's just think about that for a second. If God's power were limitless but not personal, we would find that kind of God terrifying and unapproachable. You know, he, he, he would be feared by us, but how do you know a God who is immense and limitless but not personal? We, we would just tremble in fear. Like, how do you have a relationship with a lightning bolt? You know, limitless power, but, but not approachable, not personal. On the other hand, if God's power were only personal, but not also limitless, you know, he might be loving and kind, but how would we have any assurance that he could actually accomplish his purposes in our lives? He'd be like, he'd be like a grandparent. It's like you, your, your power, your riches, they're, they're personal. It's great, you're for me but how much can you really do? But what Paul is saying is his power is simultaneously limitless and personal, meaning he is absolutely unique in who he is and how he exercises power. Therefore, he's absolutely trustworthy. And now going on, this is, this is now Paul's evidence of that. If you're like, how do I know that you have this kind of limitless personal power? Well, look at verses 18 through 20. So remember, he's praying that you may know. Church, I want you to know what? I want you to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. So when Paul wants to assure believers of the limitless personal power of God, what's his exhibit A? It's this incomparable story, point two. I'll go into this, but let me just give you a little historical context here. So when, when Paul is writing to the church, there are a number of false messiahs that are kind of circulating around this Greco-Roman world. And some of them were religious leaders like Jesus. Some of them were military leaders. Some of them were political leaders, but they all had one goal in common, and that is deliver the Jewish people from Roman bondage, overthrow Rome, and establish the Messianic age. And so a number of men came on the scene and they said, I am, I am he. I'm the one that the old covenant speaks about. I'm the anointed one. I have God's power. Follow me, and we will overthrow Rome, and the Messianic age will come. Now, Christians, and you know this, Christians believe out of all those rabbis and rabble-rousers, Jesus was the true Messiah. But do you ever think about, like, why do we believe that? What, 
Is that weird? Like the God we believe in, like walked on this earth as a Jewish rabbi carpenter. And we believe he's the divine son. Why do we believe that? What's the central reason why we believe that? Do you know it's not all the amazing things that he taught? It is not even all the amazing miracles that he performed. It's not even the amazing way that he loved people in his orbit who were very broken and unlovely, but he loved them. Do you know it's not even because he had this amazing sacrificial death on the cross? Now, what, what is the central reason we believe that Jesus is the Messiah? It is the resurrection. Elsewhere, Paul says the entire Christian faith rises or falls on this one event. Again, not the crucifixion, not the life of Jesus, not the miracles of Jesus, not the teachings of Jesus. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, if the resurrection happened, then your entire life must be centered on Jesus. If it didn't happen, then everything about Christianity is a sham and we might as well go to brunch. I mean, Paul didn't say the brunch part, but he just said it's, it's a sham. It's, there, there's nothing to it. If this man said what he said, did what he did, died a truly sacrificial death, but then what did his sacrifice accomplish if he didn't rise from the dead? Nothing. I want you to think about this. In historical context, Jesus' story appeared to end like pretty much every other messianic story in excruciating execution like in a violent bloodbath. And whether it's an inside job of betrayal or the just overwhelming force of the Roman army, the Messiah figures always wound up dead. And Jesus was no different. He wound up dead. And it was both. He was betrayed by an inside job, thanks Judas, and the Romans executed him. Now, verse 7, backing up to what we looked at last week, says Jesus shed his blood for our redemption and forgiveness. In other words, the Bible claims Jesus purchased our freedom and our pardon at the cost of his life. But how can we be sure? If we're like, I want to put my faith in Jesus, I, 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 I hope it's true. How can you be sure that what Jesus says he accomplished by shedding his blood on a cross, that is actually true and the biblical answer is, verse 20, he, that is God the Father, raised him, that is Jesus, from the dead. And I want you to think for a moment about how limitless and personal the power of the resurrection is. First of all, the, the resurrection itself is, is limitless power. Because we know death is the end. Okay? The, the Bible itself says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Why? Because you know when you and I die, the moment you die, every cell in your body starts dying. And that process of decay is inevitable. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? <laughs> it's just like, hang, hang in for a second, okay? There's a point. So we, we look with the, with the marvel of modern science and medicine, and we're like, we can push death off further. We can delay death, and in many ways we can. We, we can even resuscitate someone who appears to be dead, like their heart has stopped. We can jumpstart their heart. We have, a, we have a device back here in our staging area 
that if that were to happen to you, we could hook up these little things to your chest and zap you and very probably like kind of bring you back to life. But you know what modern science can't do, what medicine can't do is, is wait three days and then bring you back. Like if, if you're dead, dead, your cells die and you go through this decay and there's nothing we can do about it. Death is this great inescapable equalizer because if you're rich or poor, if you are wise or foolish, if you are a man, a woman, a child, if you're conservative, liberal, it, like take any categories you want, we all die. And we know when we die, we're not coming back here. So think about the infinite power of God at work in Christ. When he scoffs at death, he mocks death. And, and the Greek here is literally, he raises him from amongst the dead and brings him back on Easter morning and he walks out of his own tomb and he's conquered the last enemy. He's conquered the unconquerable. Okay, that's the limitless power of the resurrection. And think about how personal the resurrection is also. You know, what, what does Jesus do when this resurrection power comes into him in the most personal, loving, gracious way? He goes and appears to his disciples and friends and he, he shows them himself and he has conversations with them like, now do you understand that your sins are really forgiven and that my purpose for your lives is unstoppable? Because if the grave can't stop it, nothing can stop it. Just go and follow me. And then he tells all of us, like, I am the first fruits of a new kind of resurrection. And if you hope in me and you're buried with me, you will be raised with me. And this invincible, unstoppable force of God's power will also work in you in a very personal way to bring you back forever. Okay. Now, this isn't an Easter sermon, but I would say if you have doubts about the credibility of Jesus' resurrection, I invite you to come and talk after the service. I'll make myself available or others will make themselves available because I'd like you to consider just the, the historic evidence of five things. And I'll just list these off. Again, this isn't an Easter sermon, but number one, the Romans did in fact kill Jesus. Okay, they crucified him. They were really good at killing people. They killed Jesus. Number two, on Easter morning, there was in fact an empty tomb. Number three, on Easter morning, there was, in fact, a recognizable Jesus walking around, introducing himself to first dozens and then hundreds of people who saw him after he died and was buried and came back. Number four, there was, in fact, a revolution, a complete revolution in the lives of those who saw him. And number five, there is, in fact, today a worldwide community of over a billion people who live transformed lives because they believe in a Jewish carpenter as their personal savior, okay? This is all evidence that Jesus really did rise. But let's keep going here because Paul says the resurrection wasn't the end of the evidence of God's power. It was just the beginning. And the next point is an incomparable status. Notice this going on, verse 20, going through 22. So again, he, God the Father, raised him, Jesus Christ, from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. So now you notice Paul's not just talking about the resurrection. He's talking about two more events, the ascension 
of Jesus and his exaltation or his enthronement at the Father's right hand. And I call this an incomparable status because the right hand of the king, like the only person that gets to sit at the right hand of the king is the person that the king wants to honor and give power and status to. So think about this. God the Father, who's the person that God the Father says, I exalt him? Jesus. So he's exalted in position at the Father's right hand in the heavenly places far above. That's an exalted position. Exalted in time. He says both in this age and also in the one to come and then exalted over whom? Well, every rule, every authority, every power, every dominion and every name. And I could break this all down for you. What, what do each of those really cool words mean? But I actually don't think the point is to find hardline distinctions between them and be like, what's the difference between a rule and a power? The point is, by just overwhelming us with rule, authority, power, dominion, name, the point is, Jesus Christ is exalted above everyone and everything. Whether that is invisible or visible, whether that is human or non-human, whether it's now or forever, it's literally God put all things under his feet. All things. So every human leader that we fear or that we're frustrated by is under the feet of Christ. Every, every heavenly, and I mean by that, they could be demonic. They could be a supernatural spiritual force or created being that is far more powerful than you and me under Jesus' feet. All things. And this, this is kind of an interesting picture of something being under your feet because it's quoting two Psalms, Psalm 8, 6 and Psalm 110, verse 1. And Paul's kind of like going back to the Psalter and he's pulling these verses out and being like, now do you see how these verses in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, the ascension to heaven and the enthronement at the Father's right hand, it's actually Jesus the Messiah who's the one that these verses are ultimately pointing to. And there's, I think, two important things about this metaphor of everything being put under your feet. In Psalm 8, 6, this is a picture of cultural care. So we, we looked at Psalm 8 this summer. And I'm sure you all remember that, okay? Um, no, you don't. You don't remember that. But what Psalm 8, 6 was talking about in context was, it says basically God put all things under our feet because he's given us dominion as his vice regents to govern the world, to take care of culture in the way that he would if he were physically here as king. So it's like you are, you are co-ruling with me and I've given you this delegated authority to rule over my creation. So one thing that this means by having all things under his feet, it's like God, Jesus, ultimately has dominion over all of his world and he has dominion to care for it. But it's not just cultural care, because that, 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 that sounds really nice. Here's the one that doesn't sound as nice. The other picture of putting all things under your feet from Psalm 110 verse 1 is a conquering king. And the kings actually had this tradition, like an awful tradition. Like in the ancient world, when you go to battle and your army's doing a battle for you and your army's conquering this other army, like then you bring in the king at the end of the day and he literally just puts his foot on the other king's head or neck and then often executes him. But it's, it's symbolic of like, this is what I think of you. You are underneath me. 
You are no threat to, you're in the most vulnerable, shamed position. And the second picture is like, Jesus is not afraid of any adversary that we are afraid of. He's just like, they're all under my feet. I've conquered them all and I will conquer them all. And so do you get the picture here? He's saying there is no power, no authority in earth or in heaven like the authority of Jesus. There's no kingdom like the kingdom of Jesus. There's no name like the name of Jesus. Okay, so how does that work in us, through us, for us? And that's an important point that I want you to take home. There is this thing of just like, why do we worship Jesus? Because he is king, because he is high and lifted up, because he is most glorious and powerful in all the universe. That's true. But how does that work in my everyday life? Because again, the context is that's exactly what Paul is praying. Church, I don't want you to just know the power of God is this abstract, like, wow, that must be incredible. And I'll get to see him someday and that'll be great. How does that power work for us? And this is point four, an incomparable solidarity. Now, as I've just said, in verses 20 through 22, Jesus sounds like this unapproachable, imposing figure. Like if you came to someone whose eyes were just blazing with this kind of authority and power, no limits, we would be terrified of him. So what comes next is paradoxical, but it's really, really important. So notice verses 23, or 22 and 23. He, God the Father, put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and in all. So he's saying, not only is Jesus enthroned over the universe, he is also simultaneously the head of the church, which is called his body, which is one of, one of Paul's favorite metaphors to describe the, the intimacy and the union that you as followers of Jesus have with him is not just like uh, rabbi pupil, like student and teacher or something like that. He's like, Jesus is the head and we are the body and members of it. And he's like, just think for a moment about how connected are the members of my body to my head? Well, you can't conceive of a more intimate connection than the connection between your head and the rest of your body. And that's his point. That's how connected we are. That's how unified we are with Jesus. Okay, now going on here, he says this cryptic statement. He's the, the fullness of him who fills all and in all. And there are three main interpretations of this, which I'm not going to give you this morning. I'm just going to tell you this. I'm going to tell you what this doesn't mean and what it does mean. Because we can all agree on this, I think. What it doesn't mean is that Christ was somehow deficient or limited without us. Or that he was like empty without us. But then it's like he sees his bride, the church, and he's like, you complete me. And that is sometimes read this way. That he's like, we are the fullness that fills him, even as he fills us. And he was incomplete without us. And people go into this metaphor of like um, a husband and wife and be like, well, in a sense, the husband wasn't incomplete without his wife. But in a sense, like she kind of completes him because now they're together. Um, okay, it, it doesn't mean in any way that Christ was deficient or incomplete. Notice Christ fills all and is in all. And let's just start there. So what it means is 
Christ wasn't empty without us. We were empty without Christ. That's what he's saying. And the word fills, I mean, you could think of like filling a container, and that's accurate. But the word means he completes, he supplies everything that's lacking. The, the word here is used of a, a boat, like a fishing vessel that is fully equipped to go out on the water and do its purpose and come back in. Okay, so the, the picture here is this is what Jesus does for the church because that's what a head does for a body, right? You, you know, your head is responsible for things like direction and coordination and the allocation of oxygenated blood to the rest of your body. Now, it's, your heart is beating, um, but just don't, don't try this at home. But if you were to cut off your head, your heart and the rest of you could be intact but there would be no signals going to your heart to tell you your heart to do its thing. And your pancreas and your liver and all the other organs that you have would not work if they were disconnected from the head. Because the head is the one saying, let me direct, let me coordinate, let me allocate, let me, let me, let me work this all out. So here's what I think Paul's saying. When God saves us, we are united to Christ as members of his body. It's that intimate of a union. But he's saying his power and authority now are not simply over us as they are over everything. More to the point, he's like his power now fills you. Like every cell of your body is filled with the direction from the head. He's like now that, that's how Christ is relating to you. His power fills you up and supplies everything you need for life and godliness. So there's this incredible, incomparable solidarity means we are working together in a way that is, there's a synergy and there's a oneness. And that's how we get the power of God is through this union. We are not striving for this oneness. We're not striving to like, I'm going to figure out with the 1% of Christians how I get access to this incredible power. We get this power through surrender to Christ's power and through union with him. And I want to give you two gospel applications because I think this is really, like, I, I want to give you something actionable to do with this faith where it doesn't just feel like, okay, he, he said a lot about the power of Christ and I believe that, but I'm still not experiencing that. Okay, two things, two applications. Number one, I want you to understand God's power. I want you to understand it. That's what this whole prayer is about. Not just I want you to hear about it as a stark fact. His whole prayer is I want you to experience. I want you to comprehend it in a way where it's becoming a part of your life every day. So when Jesus walked this earth, he did countless miracles. Like we, we lose track of how many miracles he did. And then there were just all these times that all the gospel writers are like, then all these crowds were coming to him with all these problems and he healed them all. So we don't, we don't know how many miracles, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of miracles. We don't know. But my question is, what kind of miracles did Jesus do? If we want to understand God's power, what kind of miracles did Jesus do? Or to ask it differently, how and why did he exert his power in people's lives? Let me tell you three ways he did not use his power first, and then I'll tell you how he did use it. Jesus never used his power in absurd ways. So what, what I mean is, you ever hear this? Could Jesus create 
a rock that is so heavy that he can't lift it? Oh, that's it. Could, could Jesus make a square circle? And like, I don't know if some of you have asked that. I've heard those exact questions so many times. Like people are like, think they're the only person that's ever thought of those questions. And I'm like, with all due respect, and I don't think anybody in this room asked me those questions. That is so dumb. It's just absurd. Say, like, well, what, what are we doing? Jesus, Jesus never tried to do this thing where he's like, did I shock you with how absurd that is? That your mind can't, your mind's blown. I just made a square circle. He never did that. Secondly, Jesus never used his power in self-aggrandizing ways. He never flew over a crowd. Check this out. Look at me. And there, to be clear, in a way, every single one of his miracles, also called signs, was like, look at me. Because I'm demonstrating to you, I'm proving to you I am who I say I am. But it was never like, look at me, that I can just like blow your minds in a self-serving, selfish way rather than a redemptive way. Thirdly, Jesus never used his power in destructive ways. Like all those times the Pharisees were talking back to him, he was never just like, zap. And they're like this smoldering little heap of ashes. And he's like, anyone else, you know? Um, he, he never did that. He was never absurd. He was never self-aggrandizing. He was never destructive with his power. Now, what, what did he do? Throughout the life and ministry of Jesus, when he exerted his power in a supernatural way, it was always, as I go through this, it was always to heal and restore and nourish and encourage broken people. Heal and restore and nourish and encourage broken people. Why? Because Jesus loves us. And because he wanted to authenticate his identity and mission. I am the Messiah, come to seek and save the lost. Now, I want to be clear. When I say Jesus exerted his power to heal and restore and nourish and encourage, the exercise of Jesus' power was incredibly paradoxical and not at all what anyone thought it would be. So, and I'm, I'm talking to people, you're my friends with real problems today, okay? How many times was it so clear to Jesus' best friends, Master, we know how you need to use your power right now. And he was like, nah. And the best one is when the friends come and they're like, hey, your friend Lazarus is sick. Remember Mary and Martha and Lazarus? And it's like, they, they need an intervention, and what's incredible is that they're believing in his power, that like Lazarus is on a really bad track. He has like a terminal illness. But, but if you come, everything will be all right. So that, that's great faith. I, I don't know that they were wrong. Jesus doesn't rebuke them. But what did he do? It's like, I got some other stuff to do for a few days. Like literally lets Lazarus die and then goes to Bethany. You know the story, like when, when he's going to Bethany and Martha hears that he's coming, she runs out to meet him and is like, Rabbi, if, if you would have been here, he wouldn't have died. And then later he kind of has the same conversation with Mary. Lord, if, if you would have just been here, like, wh what is your deal? Like, we know that you have power. A and we know that you'll raise him from the dead. And Jesus is like, I am. Not, not I will. I am the resurrection and the life. 
and he raises Lazarus from the dead. See, Jesus is saying, you need to know me not as the God who prevents the bad things in your life that you don't want to have happen. You need to know me as the God who can let them happen and then bring you back from the dead. That's why I say, like, we're not imposing on Jesus our will of, like, I know exactly what, what you're going to do here. Like, uh, my illness is going to turn for good, and I'm going to glorify God, and I know you would, and I'm going to win this trial, and I'm going to get this job and this promotion, and my marriage is going to be healed. And then, like, things fall apart, and we're like, God, I thought you had the power. And, and he does. He clearly does. But I'm just saying how Jesus used his power and go back and just immerse yourself in the Gospels and read these stories and realize Jesus is up to far more, not less, far more than we ever imagined with his power. And it is to heal and restore and nourish and encourage broken people. Friends, we, we don't invite this kind of a God into our lives as a personal consultant. Oh, yeah, yeah, I, I know that you're seated in the heavenlies at the right hand of the Father and every rule and authority and dominion and Lord and King and governor is under your feet. Um, but I've got a really good plan for my life, God, and I would like you to rubber stamp that with your power. That is not his program. And, and we do well to learn that, of like learning to surrender my purposes and my will and my knowledge of if God showed up right here, it would look like this. And then that thing doesn't happen. So we're like, he didn't show up. Well, he didn't do what you wanted, but I'm certain he showed up. I, I, actually, I think one of the greatest powers in all the world is that all that garbage stuff still happens to us as followers of Jesus. And you, you're still showing up to church and you're still believing in him. That is an incredible exercise of power in your life to overcome doubt, to overcome anger, to overcome bitterness, to overcome frustration and say, I still believe because God is still in power and he's working something for my good. All right, understand God's power. Last thing, plug into Christ's power. Okay, we know this analogy, plug into. Okay, when we, when we first finished this building a few years ago, like nine seconds before COVID hit. Um, and, and then like nothing was happening here. And I kept coming by to check on things and like all this, you know, all these sidewalks out here, all these plants, all this curbing, all of it brand new. And we put in irrigation. We had this drip line that we paid all this money for. And back here in the staging area, there's this little irrigation controller. So I'm coming by in the middle of the summer of 2020 and like all of the plants are dying. And I'm talking about thousands and thousands of dollars of shrubs and trees. They're all dying. And I'm like, what in the world? I mean, I know it's hot. And I know it's like we're in this urban heat sink. But come on. So I, I come back here and I look at the controller and I'm like, oh, each drip area is only on for 10 minutes. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to crank that up to 20. And I'm going to water every area for 20 minutes. And I bet that will make all the difference in the world. And, uh, and it seemingly made no difference, and all the plants died. And so I tore them out, and I went to the store, and I bought all new plants, and I planted them. And I waited a few months, and all those plants died too. And I'm like, all right, this is getting ridiculous. So I hire a landscape professional, and I'm like, can you come out and figure out what is going on? Because I'm watering all these zones for 20 minutes a day, and everything's still drying up and dying. 
And he comes right out here in front of the coffee shop and he pops open that green box and he's like, well, here's your wire coming from the building and here's the wires to your solenoids and do you see how these are not connected? <laughs> so everything that's happening on this controller back here is like sending a signal into the abyss. <laughs> and the solenoids are not receiving that signal. And he's like, all, all you, your, what your landscaper, your contractor should have done is just go like this and twist the wires together and then they're connected. And that's why we have like whatever, our seventh time out here with plants. That's why they, they live now. So they're actually getting water. Some of you are, are that close to experiencing the power of God in your life because you are saved. You believe in him. You're just not plugging in. And you're like, but I'm so, but I'm so close to him. But you're not plugging in. And very practically, I think there's a prayer here and I think there's a practice and then I'm done. The prayer is a prayer of surrender. And I encourage us, I encourage myself to pray something like this every day, maybe many times a day. God, I believe that you are sovereign. I really do. I believe that you're, you're all powerful. You can do anything you want to in our world, in my life. But as I look at myself, I am, I am not all powerful. I am weak. I am struggling to do some of the most basic things that I want to do, but don't find it in myself to do them. And just praise things like, God, I can't do life apart from you. I don't want to do life apart from you. Will you please fill me with the fullness of your strength so that I can please you today? So there's a prayer of surrender. I think there's also a practice, I said, of like self-evaluation. Like, what am I doing right now that is actually dependent on the power of God at work in me? Okay, so just, just thinking back over the last week of your life, what did you attempt, what did you do in your day-to-day -day going off to work, working a job or vacationing or talking to your family or meeting up with a friend? Like, what did you do that you're like, this is dependent on the power of God? And if the answer is nothing, then there's a follow-up question. Functionally, what were you relying on? And you can say nothing. Well, it's not nothing. You defaulted to something of like, this will work because I... I rely on the power of my relationships. I rely on the power of my job. I rely on the power of my finances. I rely on the power of my emotions. I rely on the power of my connections. You know, how are we living any differently than the non-Christians around us who also don't ask for or rely on the power of God? What am I doing to pursue the purposes of God? It's a good one. That will fail unless God shows up in power. What am I attempting for him that's going to fail apart from his supernatural power? And again, if, if the answer is nothing, then we are far too risk averse. We, we're not taking that eternal cosmic, but also personal power and bringing it into our present moment and saying, I'm depending on this. Lord, help me to live and again, like, and this is like confession time because most of you know what we're going through with court and trial and losing all that. Like, I think one of the greatest evidences of God's power at work in us as a family is like, we still love Jesus and still think he's sovereign and nothing's working out right now. But that is an incredible work of God in his kindness 
to be powerful in a paradoxical way because that's not what we were, we're not praying like, Lord, just please let us fail and then just encourage us in that. And you're not praying for that either. But if he does that, what a kindness. You know, as I was writing this in my office, at this very point of like, I can't think of a good conclusion, um, I realized how cold I was. And I realized that I had plugged in my space heater right next to me, but it was in a power strip. So I was going to have to get up and walk across the room to turn on the power strip because it's one of those switched outlets. And I sat there for the longest time just getting colder and colder. And I was like, I am not walking. And finally, I was like, fine. And I got up and walked across the room, and I was fine, okay? Plug into Christ's power. Choose to do that. It's, it's not that hard. It is humbling sometimes. But, but Christ is there for you. He's like, I, I am powerful for you. My power is towards you in Christ. So will you embrace this union? Will you delight in this union so that you can use his power in your weakness, not just yours?